This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. I am your host for today's podcast, Bridget Smith, and joining me today is Greg Gitter. Greg is the president of Legacy Claim Solutions. Um, Legacy assists you in every facet of legacy claim resolution, and their primary focus is to help clients set, settle their longstanding high exposure workers' compensation claims, most often seen as legacy claims or, quote, old dog. So welcome, Greg. Thank you for joining us today. Bridget, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's get started. So there's a lot of questions that I think our audience will have about MSPs and using um, Medicare set-asides in the settlement process. So I kind of want to dive right into it and ask you, what are those claims or those MSAs that you just know are not good? How do you know you have a poor MSA? Because a lot of them look alike. How do you, what, what can you look for? Sure. So a lot, a lot of times the things that we see uh, when an MSA comes through is, is uh, you know, a variety of things. It could be missing medicals. It could be missing uh, payment histories, RX histories, things like that. Really some of the, the, the more simple and straightforward type things that make it incomplete. Um, it may not necessarily be poorly written. Uh, you know, sort of the, the old expression kind of garbage in, garbage out. If you don't give the allocator everything they need, they can't give you back a good quality report or a well-written MSA. So, you know, sometimes we see that. So I always stress with, with folks, uh, make sure you provide as much information as you can, all the medicals, if, if you need to, you know, pause on getting an MSA done to make sure you've tracked down the most recent medicals, or if there's a block of, of medicals you're missing or some gaps in a pay history or an RX history, you know, track all that information down and make sure it goes to the allocator really before you ask them to, to produce a report for you. Because again, it, you can wind up with a, a poor MSA as a result of that. And again, not necessarily any fault of the allocator and sometimes not even the, 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 the fault of the, the person requesting, but really the, the, the best MSAs that we see are the ones that are the most complete, have the most complete set of information. So um, with respect to that, how when you see MSAs that don't have that information, how does that impact the settlement process? So it, it really, it, it, it tends to create a series of, of problems and issues when it comes to how we approach the MSA. And, and obviously the, the most recent sort of uh, news that's come down from CMS and the change in the reference guide with use of, of non-submit evidence-based MSAs and things like that, you know, those are, we, we always want to be as accurate as we can, um, whether it's submitted or not. And certainly if a, in a situation now in particular, where, where I think the, there's starting to become a shift of submitting more, more MSAs than we had, say, over the last, say, three to five years, all it's going to do is create situations where you get development letters and uh, additional requests for information from CMS, which is simply going to delay the process. You know, it, it, uh, I remember back in the, in the good old days of, of MSV compliance when, you know, we were looking at 12, 18 month turnaround times from CMS and they've done a really good job uh, over the last several years of improving their turnaround time. At the last I heard, I know we were at 32, 33 
days average for them to turn an MSA around with, with a response. And, and that's fantastic. It really helps to facilitate, move that settlement process along. It doesn't cause delays or stalls. And, and it really is uh, by not providing them with all the information, you're almost asking for a development letter uh, for them to ask for more information, uh, either because the, the data is incomplete or uh, the correct description or, or articulation of body parts isn't included and things along that line. Yeah, and, and those development letters can take a really long time. And in the interim, you're paying on the claim, right? So you have continued exposure, sure. So um, um, both the medical and indemnity, uh, from the medical and indemnity standpoint, if the indemnity remains unresolved. That's true. That's true. It impacts both. So get your ducks in a row, I guess, is the, is the, the best thing to do. And then what about um, well indicators of a well-written MSA? What do you look for when you're looking at that MSA for settlement purposes? So again, it's, it's that thorough, complete, um, a, a complete review, a, a really a detailed analysis of the medical um, well thought out and, and uh, an explanation of if there are denied body parts, uh, you know, explaining sp specific details of why a body part may be excluded uh, as part of the MSA. Certainly all the, the standard things that we look for or ask for are needed in MSA. The use of rated ages uh, and the proper use of rated ages and the proper language related to, to the use of rated ages in, in MSAs. Again, I, I still see now uh, despite the kind of the direction and kind of like we have things like that that are missing out of an MSA and, and it, uh, the, the really good ones have that it's a it's it's well written it's a, a nice tight story and a tight report um, that, that we can then go through you know as a as an industry I think that that we have done a, a very very good job of over the years coming to understand better what CMS's expectations are uh, kind of how they view the world as it relates to allocations and how we allocate. And generally speaking, we don't see these wild swings in, uh, in uh, counter hires and things of that nature because we've, we've evolved and developed in the process of, of providing them with the accurate information. And, and you see that in a, a well-written MSA is that it's, it's complete, it's concise, it addresses all of the issues uh, it, it allocates, for example, a, a proper number of spinal cord stimulators if that recommendation is there, uh, knowing that how CMS looks at that, that the timeframes, the, the cost based on jurisdiction and things of that nature, those kinds of details are important because, again, it's, if it's well put together and well written, it makes it uh, a good tool to use as part of the settlement and certainly it'll, it'll help to expedite that approval process when the time comes to submit to CMS. Sure, sure. And you know, you dealing with so many settlements, when you look at an MSA, do your eyes autom automatically pop when you see certain things on there that you know the case is not gonna settle because of these issues? I think we've all had that at certain times, right? Sure, and, and it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of like you're, you know, the, back, in, back in school, you'd go and you'd, you'd forget, you wouldn't look at what, how many questions you missed, you'd look at your grade, the same kind of thing there's certain areas of a of an msa that that i will you know i or any anyone of anybody in my, my, part of my group looks at you know we immediately go to look at at those critical factors obviously understanding the the case and and how cases developed and where things stand today is important but going right to the the those cost drivers the implantable devices whether it's spinal cord stimulators uh intrathecal pumps or morphine pumps things of that nature 
uh, going right to that and, and looking at that and making sure that the allocation has properly assessed or evaluated those things, um, good, bad, or otherwise. Again, it's it's not, uh, you know, I, I often say, you know, I, I, we just answered the one that brung us. Um, at least on the front end, a lot of times, you know, cases develop the way it's developed. We're going to look at those things, look at the medications. Um, has the, is that what's driving an MSA? Is that the cost, really the big cost driver and identify immediately and then go back and study the report and, and try to identify or figure out if there are ways to manage or mitigate those things uh, along the way. Are there some, some tools, some other tools we can employ to address some of those issues or concerns um, and really kind of use uh, knowledge experience and, and all the things that we have to either ensure that the MSA is correct or, or find ways to help mitigate it before it goes to CMS and before we wind up with uh, a determination from them. Yeah, and what kind of, what are some of the, I think mitigation is something that um, is a really important part of the MSA, especially when it comes to settlement. Do you find that the parties at, at the time of settlement are more responsive to working together on those mitigation issues as opposed to during the course of, of litigation? So no question. I think that once um, the parties have all kind of reached the point of, of the desire to settle or the interest, mm -hmm. the true interest in, in wanting to get a case settled, the, the level of cooperation tends to go up and, and many times on the front end of a case when we initially get involved, you know, we'll, we'll be talking to, to, to both sides, both both defense and, and, and plaintiff or claimants counsel, mm -hmm. and, and there'll still be this sort of animosity or, or headbutting. And, and it's, you know, sort of the understanding of, hey, everybody, we're all at the same place. We all want to get to the same point of reaching a settlement. Right. And sometimes in order to do so, we've got to work instead of working against each other, sitting on opposite sides of the table. Sometimes it's best we get to the same side of the table where we start kind of moving things in the right direction to position a case to, to be able to settle, to be able to manage the exposure, to manage what an MSA looks like, still properly considering Medicare's interest, but right. manage it in a way such that, that it, it makes it more palatable and, and more reasonable to settle. You know, too many times the a case has been has been gone down the path and, and the costs, the medical costs of, are very, very high and Things have happened along the way. Perhaps a doctor has, has tried some things or a doctor's been uh, a little more aggressive sometimes than, than perhaps they should be. And, and we're now trying to find a way to manage that as part of that settlement. And, and really, again, that, some of that mitigation, being able to find ways to, uh, again, while still properly considering Medicare's interests, but being able to uh, manage what that dollar amount looks like and, and make it uh, a number that's, that's workable and viable relative to the, the value and the exposure of the case, because too many times a defendant will look at it and say, look, it, it's, not, uh, it's not worth settling. This case isn't worth settling because the MSA outstrips my annual spend or my, my lifetime exposure on a case. Right. Why would I settle this? Right, and, and so I can think of an example with medication, right? There, a lot of times um, medication is, is mentioned and then at some point, those medications drop off, but it could still be where it's included in the MSA just because it's a copy and paste from other records of the doctor and it's not clear. So working together to get a real clear picture of the claimant's or plaintiff's future medical 
when it comes to that medication is important. I think it also, those mitigation strategies also clear up what the gray parts are of the MSA. So I, I absolutely agree that that is extremely important. And, and with respect to that, what, what if you have, and have you ever had a situation where you've walked into settlement and you have two conflicting MSAs from one party and the other? And how have you dealt with that? So sure, we don't see a ton of that. In, in, from workers' compensation perspective, we don't see a whole lot of that because typically the, the plaintiff or claimant side sort of pushes that responsibility to the defense and says, well, it's your problem, you get the MSA, you pay for it, that kind of thing. On occasion, we see a little bit of that in some of the liability things and, and, and that kind of thing where there, there are some, some dueling, if you will, type MSAs. And when we've seen those types of situations arise, really it's, it's our first goal or objective is sort of a side-by-side -side comparison to say, okay, where are, they, where are they the same and where are they different? And why are they so different? Did both allocators or both, both companies that did the allocation look at the same set of information? Because if you have two different sets of facts you provide, you'll get two different outcomes. If, if one, one allocator sees a complete picture and the, only one, the other one only sees 60 or 65% of the picture, you're not going to get the same outcome or result. It's it's not reasonable to expect. So a lot of times it's it's education of the parties to be able to say, okay, you have two separate uh, set asides that you've had prepared, and here are the similarities and here are the differences. And this is more accurate from the standpoint of the consideration of Medicare's interests. And this one, while we appreciate the effort and, and what you've done, isn't necessarily something we want to put in in front of Medicare or in front of CMS because we'd wind up with a counter higher, it's missing the following information, whatever it may be. So it's not shopping, if you will, for an MSA. It's, it's choosing the one that's the most accurate, that's an appropriate consideration, but not an over-consideration of Medicare's interests either. I mean, there's a, a sort of a fine line there that, that we, we need to consider a walk when we, we look at that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And do you find um, when you're you know approaching settlement uh, that claimants, un, you know, for the most part, do you think at this point they, they understand the MSA process to, to a larger degree than when it first started? Oh, I, I wish I could tell you yes. Um, okay. I, I think there is somewhat of a better understanding, uh, certainly than there was 20 years ago when, when this all really got kind of got started. Um, but I think even still today, there's so much misunderstanding about um, how we consider Medicare's interest, what's the best way to consider uh, how we go through this process, what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, and those kinds of things. And I think that, you know, I, I still to this day hear people say, we, we must have CMS approval. It's, CMS is required, CMS approval is required on a case. And I, I I correct as much as possible to say it, there's, you know, again, there's no requirement. It's, you know, the recommendations and, and things of that nature, but there's nothing that's mandated that says that we have to have their blessing. The, the requirement is that we can, we properly consider their interests and it's, it's education. And, and sometimes again, down to even sending uh, a copy of a section of, a, of the reference guide or, uh, specific, uh, an entire copy or sections of the reference guide or 
things of that nature to educate the parties about this. I had a case recently in, in California where um, the, the attorney and I, I, I we, we probably went back and forth for over the course of, of the negotiations, three or four hours of, of discussion about the submission of an MSA, um, the need or lack thereof for approval and things of that nature. And I, I think ultimately we just had to agree to disagree that uh, there was no requirement, despite me sharing everything I could possibly share with him about uh, the, the fact that there is nothing that obligates the parties to seek CMS approval. Yeah. Yeah, it's all still a learning curve, even now, after all of these years, the whole process, right? Um, so Greg, oh, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, if you had to give advice, just a, a piece of advice to parties when they're settling a case that have um, MSAs, uh, have a Medicare beneficiary or, you know, someone close to eligibility and the amount of the settlement is, is such a way that, you know, they're considering Medicare's interest or they're considering Medicare's interest because of the other elements of the case. What would be the best advice as far as approaching the MSA for settlement purposes that you could give to, to adjusters and to uh, plain claimants when it comes to, to resolution with the MSA? Sure. So my my I guess my best my best advice is is you know, really sit and understand the case and understand the facts of the case before you go down the path of of, of pursuing an MSA and, and CMS approval if that's the direction you're going or or not seeking approval and and the the you know following that process or that that protocol that that a, an organization may have understand the case understand the implications of of seeking that. You know, are you uh, from an adjuster's perspective? Are you are you paying for for medications? To to your point, if you have medications that are included that could potentially be included in the allocation that shouldn't that the claimant's no longer taking, uh, have you gone through the process of uh, identifying uh, medications, ensuring that you're paying for the proper medications that are related to the injury? Again, too many times we see medications that sort of slip through. You've got a knee and a back injury yet somehow the adjuster winds up paying for uh, blood pressure medication. Well, you can potentially create a situation for, for yourself or for your client where you've got an exposure for something that you shouldn't necessarily otherwise have. So uh, attention to those details, pay attention to what you're paying for. Is there, you know, the, the simplest of all, of all things, is there a generic version or have you tried, has the doctor been willing to try the generic version of a medication in, in lieu of that brand name. Why is the doctor prescribing the brand name? What is the reason for that? Has there even been a conversation with the doctor about the, the impact or implications of providing a brand name drug versus a generic? Because a lot of times the doctors, they're not expected, they're, they're experts in medicine. They're not experts in, in Medicare set-asides and the costs associated with, with that treatment uh, as it relates to uh, an industrial injury. So educating the doctor about, hey, is there a reason the person has to take a brand name or can, can, we, can we try a generic and, and explaining to them why, educating them why uh, the request, instead of simply going and trying to hit them over the head, trying to educate them a bit and, and tons of examples of, of situations like that that have come about where we've really had to, 
to, to sort of educate the doctor and, and those kinds of things uh, about that and, and kind of turn the tide or get the doctor to at least see the reasonableness of trying to do that. Um, making sure that if a doctor makes a, a comment regarding a spinal cord stimulator, for example, and the doctor says, you know, the person's no longer using the device and they should have it removed, that in the allocation that you're considering, you're not considering replacement stimulators for the next every seven years, but you're allocating for just the removal of that stimulator um, and, and how that imp impacts the, the allocation itself, you know, from a, a claimant side or the, the plaintiff side, you know, education to them is to, from a workers' compensation standpoint in particular, workers' compensation and liability work very differently. You know, workers' compensation, running up the medical doesn't necessarily mean it's going to increase the value of the case. Um, there, there's a, a need for treatment, those kinds of things, and that's great. But ultimately, um, the, the, the treatment that goes into the MSA is going to impact uh, the size of the MSA, of course, and then the party's ability to reach a settlement for that. Um, because again, the MSA can sometimes outstrip the, the, the annual spend that the defendant has. And a defendant may simply look at it and say, I, I'm just gonna hold on to my money. It's not worth spending that kind of money to settle this case or to spend the money on an MSA to settle it. That's, that's great, great advice, Greg. Thank you for that. Um, well, everybody, we've come to the end of our first podcast with Greg. We are going to have another podcast that we're going to be doing with Greg that is for members only because we're putting keeping him on the hot seat. We have a lot more questions for him. Um, so Greg, thank you for setting aside some time for us today to talk about this very important subject. And thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN podcast. The next episode, the next podcast is going to be MSPN 2020 objectives. So please be sure to join us for that very important podcast. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Bridget.